God, we pray that you would shed light on your word to us today. Let the light of your word shed light on who we are and on who you are so that we can come away knowing more of who you are and knowing how much bigger you are than our understanding. So send your spirit that we would be enlightened by your word and encouraged by what we find there. In Jesus' name, amen. As part of my training for ministry, I spent a summer three years ago working as a chaplain in a large inner-city hospital in Atlanta. It didn't take long for me to realize that the presence of the chaplain didn't always create the calming effect we were going for. Sometimes I would enter a room and say, Hi, I'm Whitney. I'm the chaplain. Can I sit with you today? And the response I would get was a stricken face and someone going, No! like I was the angel of death, there to bring bad news. In some ways, though, this wasn't totally off base, because a large part of my role was doing just that, going with doctors to tell families the worst news they'd ever hear. Some nights were longer than others, but I remember one terrible night. I had two families to tend to at the same time. They were both placed in family rooms in the emergency section of the hospital and were sitting on the hard, plasticky couches. Both were stricken with grief, but in different ways. The first room had a small family who were mourning the loss of their mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, who was 90 years old, who had suffered with a long illness and who, in their words, they felt was ready. They quietly mourned, and we read Psalm 23 over and over again. A few doors down, though, and a world away was the other family. This African-American family had at least 12 people crammed into the tiny room as they awaited news on the 19-year-old boy who had collapsed while playing basketball with his friends. I stood there outside the door with a doctor who was wiping tears away from her eyes, as was I, and waited to enter the room to tell the family that their world had just collapsed. We waited because they were praying. Clearly from a charismatic Pentecostal tradition, they stood in a circle in the tiny room with their arms raised in the air and prayed out loud all at once, saying things like, heal him, restore him, save him. We had to wait until they were finished to go in and tell them that their prayers weren't answered. It was terrible. When the doctor told them through tears that the boy had an undiagnosed heart condition and that he didn't make it, chaos erupted. The father threw himself on the floor, beating the ground with his fists. A daughter tried to throw a chair. The mother just crumpled into a chair, keening and wailing. As I sat with them for a long time, all I could do was sit there and hold their hands and just be there. I couldn't tell them that it was God's will for their son to die. I couldn't tell them that they would be whole someday, because I didn't know that. 
I couldn't tell them why God didn't heal their son. All I could do was sit with them, cry with them, be with them on the worst day of their life. I tell you this story because this morning's text is one of those that we like to gloss over, use as, as an example of trusting God so that God will heal us. We flippantly throw around the words Jesus gave to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and say that if we really trust God, God will heal us. I'm pretty sure this family had been told this at some point. Sometimes the way we read scripture can actually do more damage than we realize. Sometimes we can read scripture as a rule book of what to do and what not to do. And the lesson from this story is simple. If you have faith in Jesus and act on it, you'll be healed. We can also sanitize or spiritualize this story. If you've heard this story before, which I bet most of you have, you probably read it like I sometimes have, sanitizing it. Okay, so there's this woman. She has a little problem with bleeding. So she puts a wee plaster on it, marches out to Jesus with her long flowing blonde hair, and walks up to Jesus who also has long flowing blonde hair. And she reaches out with a flourish like a ballerina and touches the edge of his cloak, his long purple velvet cloak that miraculously is dust free. And as she touches his cloak, she feels that she is no longer sick and her wee little bit of bleeding is gone. And there might be a little flash of light or a little pop or something, but she is healed. It's so nice. Oh, I forgot. Oh, and there's a little girl who gets really sick and dies, but then she's raised to life again, and she has the cutest bow in her hair. Oh, it's so cute. But this is not our story. We're going to look again at this story and hear what it's really saying. And then if we're tempted to glean easy answers out of it, we're going to remember that family in the hospital and not come away with any conclusions we wouldn't tell that family to their face in their grief. But still, we're going to learn something of God and something of ourselves here. So here's Jesus walking among a crowd of people that is pressing in on him at every side. And Jairus, a synagogue leader, breathlessly comes to him. His daughter is so sick that forgetting his religious and political power, he throws himself at Jesus' feet and begs Jesus to lay hands on her so that she will be saved and live. Jesus agrees, and so they rush through this crowd to the house where the girl is, but it's like trying to rush through mud. There is such a huge crowd following and pressing in on every side. It's hard to even move. It's smelly. It's dirty. It's loud. It's chaotic. And it's about to get worse. A woman who has had a flow of blood for 12 years. Remember, Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. These stories are meant to go together. She's forced her way into the crowd. But this is very dangerous. 
There's no wee plaster. The Greek text says that she has a fountain of blood. And knowing Jewish cleanliness codes, this means that this woman is most likely making everyone around her unclean by bleeding all over them. They could have reacted violently against her and most likely would soon. So why would she risk it? Well, the text says that she has suffered under many doctors trying to cure her and has spent all of herself and instead of getting better, continues on into the bad or into the evil. She wouldn't have even been allowed in the temple to worship for 12 years because she was unclean. She's at the end of her rope and she is so desperate to be saved that she'll risk her life for it. Hoping to be saved from this torment of bleeding, she touches Jesus' dirty, worn garment, and immediately her fountain of blood is dried up. Jesus, feeling power go out of him, asks, who touched him? The sometimes slow disciples, cheeky response of, look at the crowd, how can you ask who touched you, is actually pretty spot on. This is a mob scene. Everybody's touching everybody. It is crowded. Then the woman, afraid of what will come of her, trembles and falls at Jesus' feet and tells him the whole truth. Why is she trembling? It's Jesus. She's healed. She should be dancing, not shaking. Except that by touching Jesus with her blood, she's made him unclean too especially in the eyes of Jairus, the religious leader Jesus is walking with. No wonder she's shaking. But Jesus, willing to take her uncleanness upon himself to save her, says, daughter, remember there are two daughters in this story, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be made well, whole, and be healed. The language in Greek is really important here. Jesus says her faith has saved her. The word is similar to being saved from mortal danger from an enemy. But then he proclaims that she's been made well. This word means something more. It's linked to a Hebrew word used in Leviticus, the very holiness code that would condemn her for being unclean. Jesus tells her that being made well, she is now clean. She is restored to full standing in the Jewish community, no longer an outcast. He's not just healed her. He's healed her entire relationship with her community. Now, while this miraculous healing of daughter and community is happening, Jairus receives bad news that his daughter is dead. Jesus refuses to listen to these words and says, do not fear, only believe. They continue on to Jairus' house and find not just some mild tears and grieving, but a scene even more intense than my experience in the hospital. The text says in Greek that this house was an uproar, that the family were rioting and wailing in their grief. Jesus tells them, that this little girl isn't dead, she's only asleep. 
then they ridicule him because it really is a ridiculous thing to say. As ridiculous as letting an unclean woman touch him in order to heal her. He takes the girl to her parent, takes the girl's parents to her and takes her hand saying, Talitha Kum, little girl, get up. And she did, and the ridiculous became the amazing as she began to walk around. And Jesus, proving that she really was alive, told them to give her something to eat. How different this story is from the sanitized, spiritualized version we might be familiar with. In this story, we find people so desperate to be made well and saved that they ignore religious, cultural, and social customs to do it. Jairus, a great leader of the synagogue, throws himself at the feet of this wandering, troublemaking traveler. The hemorrhaging woman risks making everyone unclean, including Jesus, because it's her last chance to be healed. And she touches him without even asking permission because she's sure she would never get it. And what happens is healing not just for those bold individuals, but for an entire community and an entire family. The woman's relationship with the people who have shunned her for 12 years is restored, and she is again a daughter of Israel. The family who are rioting in their grief are amazed to have their 12-year-old daughter back. This kind of extravagant grace is utterly ridiculous. But so is Easter, that Jesus who was killed would be resurrected from the dead to forever conquer death and sin and to raise the whole world with him is utterly ridiculous. But that doesn't mean it's not true. So what truth can we find in this story? Personally, I have no desire to believe in a God who would just heal the worthy, the ones who pray the right way, and leave the rest of us to death and sin. I also have no desire to believe in a God who has nothing to do with people who are suffering or facing death. So where is God in this? In Jesus, we see that God's healing is not just about an individual, but about healing families and broken religious, cultural, and political systems. We see that Jesus did not shy away from the unclean, but allowed himself to be labeled as unclean so that all would be made clean and the practice of shunning would be overcome. We see that even death does not stop the power of God to bring wholeness and make people well. I still have so many questions about this story and about my experience in the hospital. But if our faith is not concerned with questioning, then it's very weak indeed. If we really believe that God conquered sin and death forever in the resurrection, why would we believe that our questioning could possibly conquer God? So I'll share my questions with you, hoping that in time we can discover parts of the answers together, or perhaps even more questions that help us to better see who God is and who we are. Does God heal people, political, and religious systems? 
Is God present in suffering even when physical healing does not happen? What is the power of prayer to engage us with God and each other in our moments of deepest despair, even if our prayers aren't answered as we would like? Does the resurrection change or impact any of this? If Jesus was not only raised to new life, but redefined what living was, how can we value life in new ways? If Jesus was willing to be made unclean in order to heal, are we? Who do we call untouchable? Who are we afraid to engage with because of religious, cultural, or political systems? What of our own selves do we consider untouchable and ignore rather than let be healed? These are some of my questions, and I have many more. But returning to the story I began with, there are some things I am certain of. In the midst of weeping at failed prayers and lost life, God was with that family in the hospital. And they were with each other. And God is still with them, even if their son isn't. I don't believe God brought about the death of that teenager, and I don't know why God didn't heal him. But I know that God was mourning with that family that day. I felt it. And a God who mourns with us, a God who is present in suffering, a God who will one day make all things well and calls us to participate in the healing of broken systems and broken lives. A God who is not dead, but alive, is a God I can believe in. Amen. Please join me in prayer once more. God, we confess that we are afraid. We are afraid of the change that your healing brings, and we are afraid of recognizing that sometimes questions speak more profoundly than answers. We are afraid to engage with those who we would call unclean because we care more about what others think than about what you think. Help us, O oh God, be transformed by this story. Help us find hope if we are suffering, endurance if we are waiting for prayers to be answered, and assurance that you are a God who is present in the darkest and in the lightest times. So shape us, O oh God. Help us to be present with others as you are present with us. Not to give easy answers, but to enter in to the depths of suffering. That we would all be transformed knowing that you are a God who is not dead, but a God who lives. Amen. You know how I said we were going to do a bit of liturgy? We're going to do a long bit of liturgy now. Um, we're going to actually, I think there's something really powerful, really countercultural about everybody standing and everybody saying with one voice what we believe. Instead of just having our own personal kind of ideas about things, there's something really big about this. 
And the confession that we're using is from, it's called the Belhar Confession. It's from South Africa. It was written while apartheid was still in existence. So you can kind of get the picture for how incredibly transformative these words were for those people. And I think how they can still speak to us today. So I invite you to all stand. And we're going to say this together. We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who gathers, protects, and cares for the church by word and spirit, as God has done since the beginning of the world and will do to the end. We believe in one holy, universal Christian church, the communion of the saints called from the entire human family. We believe that Christ's work of reconciliation is made manifest in the church as the community of believers who have been reconciled with God and with one another. That unity, therefore, both a gift and an obligation for the church of Jesus Christ, that through the working of God's Spirit, it is a binding force yet simultaneously a reality which must be earnestly pursued and sought. That this unity must become visible so that the world may believe. That separation, enmity, and hatred between people and groups is sin which Christ has already conquered. And accordingly, that anything which threatens this unity may have no place in the church and must be resisted. That this unity of the people of God must be manifested and be active in a variety of ways in that we love one another, experience, practice, and pursue community with one another. That we are obligated to give ourselves willingly and joyfully to be a benefit and blessing to one another, that we share one faith, have one calling, are of one soul and one mind, have one God and Father, are filled with one spirit, are baptized with one baptism, eat of one bread and drink of one cup, confess one name, are obedient to one Lord, work for one cause, and share one hope. Together come to know the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. Together are built up to the stature of Christ, to the new humanity. Together know and bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. That we need one another and upbuild one another, admonishing and comforting one another, that we suffer with one another for the sake of righteousness, pray together, together serve God in this world. Amen.